Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. This is Dave O'Leary. And we're happy to have David O'Leary as our special guest uh, today. Dave, I don't know how you want me to refer to you. I would say super fan. Does that kind of <laughs> begin to cover it? Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a good starting place, Dave. Okay. Well, the the way that we met is we were in Los Angeles at Capitol Studios uh, for the very first Gene Simmons All Day Vault Experience. My wife had been working on the vault for about a year. Uh, if you had wanted to buy that experience, she'd be one of the two people you would have called up and talked to about the details. And uh, David and I just got talking and immediately hit it off the bat and found out that we were kindred spirits, both in terms of kiss and all kinds of other things. And, uh, you know, the rest is, is history. Um, so I thought that uh, he would be the perfect guest to have on as we take a close look at Kiss Crazy Nights. Um, Kiss comes off of the relatively successful Asylum tour. Uh, and for the first time in the cycle of album tour, album tour, album tour, album tour, about four years, they take an extended break uh, in part to wait for superstar producer Ron Nevison to become available, somebody that had an amazing pedigree, looked wonderful on paper, had worked with The Who and Led Zeppelin as an engineer, had just come fresh off producing multi-multi-platinum uh, smashes with Ozzy Osbourne and Hart, and uh, I think Kiss wanted to take their time with this record. They spent four months in various studios in uh, Southern California to make it happen. Um, they were seeing other bands like Bon Jovi and uh, even a band like Poison, uh, Whitesnake, having tremendous success with individual albums where they were selling three, four, seven, 10 million copies uh, due to having some huge, massive radio hits. And I think they thought Ron Nevison was the person to take them there uh, and uh, do that for them. So any general thoughts about the album before we start diving in track by track? No, Dave, I think you did a fantastic job with that background because you hit, you hit on all the, the key points that I think led them to make the decision to move forward with somebody like Ron Nevison. And I think, uh, I think that's exactly correct. I think that set the stage pretty well for where KISS was um, in 1986 and 1987. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is in a way they ended up making the same mistake that they had just made with Dynasty and Unmasked, which is they were capable of writing successful pop songs that could sell records and Asylum hadn't sold as many records as Animalize. So they wanted to have a smash album to follow that up. Um, but at the same time, having pop hits tended to alienate their core audience and did not help them pull in crowds on the live front, which is why 
uh, after Dynasty was uh, had decreased in attendance, they were not able to tour in the States on Unmasked. So the other way to look at it is they repeated the exact same mistakes and um, went down the same rabbit hole. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. It definitely sounds very glam metal to me. Like, again, they're sort of catering to what's going on at the time. I mean, they've never been shy about doing that, but this album definitely reads like a an attempt to jump on the glam metal bandwagon, which I think at this point is almost starting to peter out to some degree, right? I mean, I guess glam metal goes on for till 91 or whatever, 92 right or even further basically you know grunge is what killed you know uh you know hard rock or metal if you will i think it was right 1991. yeah it was uh whatever it was supposedly never mind being released or whatever that murdered it all yeah but um yeah no i just i just think that the album is sort of informed by a lot of the glam metal that's going on at the time uh, even down to Paul Stanley saying, if we wanted radio airplay, we needed to write a power ballad, which he does, you know, in the album. So. Right. Now, in defense of Ron Nevison, he was amazing at capturing the vocals. I mean, Gene yeah. sounds great. Paul sounds maybe better than on any other album before or since. Um, but overall, the production is really heavily processed, overcompressed. They're using sampled snares. It's there's almost no bottom end to it. Um, every song sounds like it's mixed to be a radio hit. And at the time, Paul Stanley was quoted as saying, "Other bands use synthesizers and they and they get <laughs> mellow, but we want to use a synthesizer to make ourselves heavier than ever." Which might hold some water if it was actually true, if you're Trent Reznor or, <laughs> you know, Power Man 5000. But in this case, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, the stuff sounded very informed by Van Halen. A lot of the keyboard playing seemed to be very Van, you know, the, when they're 1984 and the following Van Hagar stuff, you know, that sort of keyboard heavy stuff. You know, I think too is, is kind of a, a fine point on it is, you know, I think, you know, Kiss has, has had that history, uh, right, of, of, of chasing certain trends of other bands that are, are, are successful, especially on the radio front. And then, uh, you know, 19, again, 1986, 87 comes along, you have White Snake and you have all those other bands that were very, very successful. And I think, you know, Kiss, uh, like with Dynasty, they went down a path that I think in their mind at the time it was, it was calculated and perhaps it was right. But in execution, I think it was a it was a misfire, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and again, I, this falls into my theory of the Kiss Blender. There's nothing on this album that sucks. There's nothing here that I want to skip or say this is a lousy song or this is too wonky. They have a formula. They know you how to get the vocals right, how to get that guitar riff so it grooves, you know what I mean, to the point where there's nothing particularly memorable about it, but I can still listen to it and get pumped up by it, you know. There's not a moment where I'm like, this is terrible, you know, and skip it. So it's, it's I, I call it the Kiss Blender. They know how to write a perfectly good song, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be memorable, you know, once you turned off the album. Yeah, there's only, for me personally, there's only one or two really cringeworthy moments on that album. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I agree with you. There's a lot about that album I really like. I just think um, the production, I think, went in a direction that I think in reflection, 
uh, it could have been a heavier record. Even if you listen to some of those de demos, I know before this, Dave and I had spoken. I think you had shared shared some some perspective on the on at least the you know those working demos. Some of them were pretty heavy. There wasn't the sheen, the shine, of course, because it wasn't produced yet. But there was certainly a little bit more aggression. Um, it was more guitar oriented as far as the uh, a lot of the demos. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So I think again, I think maybe they overshot what they were looking for, and, and it was a little mm -hmm. too produced for Kiss. Yeah, and I, I I think what a producer tends to do, I mean, we, you know, the value of a producer is that when you're writing and recording all this stuff, and you guys all know this because you've all made albums, you know, you can't see the forest for the trees. So it helps to have an outside voice, an outside pair of ears that can be objective and tell you this is working, this isn't working, this is a good choice, this isn't, you know, and, and that comes down to the choices and material. And we know that the way that Gene and Paul tend to work is Gene gives 20 half-assed song ideas to the producer and says, hey, do you think any of these have potential to be anything? And then Paul does incredibly elaborate, fully worked out, orchestrated demos and says, these are the songs that I want to do. Um, I would argue, though, that in the history of KISS, there's only been about three producers that have actually been helpful in the end to helping them make a better album. And that would be Bob Ezrin, Eddie Kramer, and Michael James Jackson. Yeah, I mm -hmm. think every other producer they've ever tried to work with uh, hasn't really understood the band or been all that helpful. Right. No, and that also goes back to the, sometimes there's a, a signature stamp to a certain producers. I mean, you have you know, the Ron Nevison of the 70s who's working with The Who and Zeppelin. I mean, he did a lot of stuff from Physical Graffiti, which is, you know, a landmark Zeppelin record. Uh, amazing sounding record. But then he had his sound for albums you know, like, you know, that he did with Ozzy and Hart. And, you know, those albums, you know, particularly the Hart record that I think, you know, that this album might sort of mirror, you know, I think that the danger is when you put on a record for the first time and it already sounds dated in, ter in terms of production, then you've got you've got a problem. You know, I think I remember put this record on. I thought, well, I've heard this sound before. I mean, you know, there's the Rockman guitar sound on there, which they've used on, you know, Analyze. I mean, uh, Doc and used that on Under Lock and Key, which was 1985. That's already two years prior. You know, you had this thing where, you know, I remember at the same time, too, not to go on a tangent, but uh, I think the Journey record uh, Raised on Radio came out in 1987 as well. And I remember as soon as I put that on, I thought, well, this already sounds dated in a way. And that's, that's not a good position to be in, uh, in terms of, you know, making progress because when you look at KISS records, you know, they've never really sounded like anybody else's records. Uh, but when they start to sound like other people's records, then I think, you know, again, it, it's a misfire. They might be going down the wrong path. And what are they chasing, which is maybe trying to have a hit and sound like somebody else, but they're better off just being who they are. Yeah, they, they've managed to shave off all the rough edges to the point where the album tends to just sort of wash over you. And you know, it did outsell Asylum in the States. Mm -hmm. Internationally, it was the best-selling non-makeup album, much like Dynasty and Unmasked played better on the international uh, sales charts than it did in the United States. Um, and Crazy, Crazy Nights was a top four hit in England. So to a certain extent, it helped them. We'll get into the resulting tour at the end and mm -hmm. uh, everything that went down there. One, one other point about the production, I think it's worth noting. I think, you know, Dave, you and I had a conversation with, uh, I believe it was my sister and her friend at the Rainbow about, 
uh, was around the time of Paul Stanley's Live to Win uh, release. Um, and, and the person we were with was sort of questioning, you know, why a, why a Paul Stanley solo album? Why, why all of a sudden you're know, doing that now? And you and I had said that, you know, maybe in the 80s, there were previously Paul Stanley solo albums. And this, this could have been one of those, right? Yeah, I think Paul felt a certain obligation to have a certain number of Gene songs on every record to make it somewhat balanced. <laughs> and that was that was a tension because the material that Gene was providing at that point really wasn't his best stuff. And I think it overall hurt all of those albums. Yeah. And and the other point I want to make about the, the production thing too is you know, apparently Ron Nevison was Paul's first choice uh, as producer for his 1978 solo record. Uh, so that didn't work out. So here it is, you know, nine, 10 years later, and he's finally getting a chance to work with the producer that he wanted to work with. But when you compare this record, you know, production to the production that's on the 1978 solo album, you know, it, it's, it's, it's far removed you know, from uh, that type of sound. So, you know, it'd be, I'd be curious to know how satisfied Paul really was in terms of working with the producer that he wanted to work with after all those years, and then this sort of being the end result. Yeah, well, apparently the record company loved it, right? They yeah. they gave it yeah. a standing ovation, clapped for five minutes, said, we're going to promote the hell out of this. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then again, does the record company ever really know anything? Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We could do a whole other podcast on record companies and politics, <laughs> right? Yeah. All right, we want to get track by track here? Yeah, let's do it. Song one, Crazy Nights. All right, I'll go. Uh, I, I like the song. I mean, it definitely sounds like 80s metal. You know what I mean? There's nothing, uh, but I find myself humming along to it. Uh, the cheese ball moment where he's like, uh, here's a little something for everybody out there, or whatever he opens the song with is a little cheese ball, but it's cool. Um, the lyrics are, again, one of these self-affirmation lyrics that they do. It's like, it's the rapper on his first track saying, you know, you can't knock me down. You can't, you try to steal my throne is his line. Um, you know, and that's similar to a lot of the other first songs on other albums where they're saying, you know, try to knock us down, but we're still here. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a good catchy song. I mean, I can't believe I'm saying it, but it's good. It's got a good beat and you can dance to it. You know, it's, it's a well, well constructed song. Um, there's no complaints except for the little cheese ball moment in the beginning, which I don't even really mind that much, actually, to be perfectly honest. So, um, yeah, but it, it definitely sounds like an eighties anthem, you know, it definitely doesn't sound as hard as the opening tracks on, um, Asylum and, and Lick It Up and, you know, that kind of stuff. It's a little more poppy. For me, it's one of the, it's one of the handful of eighties tracks that still stands up for me. You know, over the course of time, it's still a song that I, I, could, I, I can listen to on a regular rotation. And as you said, it's still, it's something about that song um, that still appeals to me. And, you know, and, and that, that grand kiss fashion, the shout it out loud, rock and roll night, all those type, you know, the anthems and, and that whole, right. that narrative they like to weave, right? It fits right in with that, you know, in that line of kiss songs. And so it is one of the songs on that album I can still fall back to and, and, and still enjoy almost as much as I enjoyed the first time I heard it. Yeah, yeah, good point. It definitely has, and it has that stuff. This is my crew. It has that like, welcome back to the fold kind of introductory thing to it that makes you like, yeah, I'm a Kiss fan, F falling ins, you know. So. Right, playing on the, the bond of the band and the fans, both being right, outsiders yeah. and misfits. Mm-hmm. 
And I think too, it's a well-written song. I mean, you know, never mind the yeah. fact that Paul is singing amazingly on this on this track. Um, you know, for me, it's all about you know chord changes. I think you know the pre-choruses are super interesting in, in terms of you know chord changes. And um, you know, again, it, it's basically just selling. It's almost selling the concept of what you need to expect when you go to see this band live on this tour that we're going to be following. So, you know, to the point too, when you look at the the tour book, I think one of the there was this whole huge narrative in the tour book. It's almost like the Bible of Kiss, but I think the last thing it reads is, you know, welcome to the craziest night of your life. So, you know, when you get the tour book, okay, then I'm expecting to be blown away and have a crazy time. And, you know, there you have it. So it, it's cool to think of it in, in that way, because that is sort of like a, an underlying theme, you know, for the record. And that is supposed to come across in a live show. So Paul wrote the song with Adam Mitchell. And he told Adam what he wanted to capture was the feeling of being at a concert and the anticipation uh, that the crowd feels and that energy as it's just about to start and anything is possible. Um, and I think on a certain level, it does that. Um, something that Adam Mitchell points out about the song that I had never thought about before, but it's very true, is that with one small exception, the song is written completely in the present tense which is unusual for a song. And the only point which it changes that is when he says, because nobody's going to change me because that's who I am. Um, but I think by writing it in the present tense, it, it captures that immediately. There's kind of a weird poignant sadness, though, about this song. It's almost, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the covers versions of the song have been ballads. Um, in fact, there's a version of the song done by Gregorian monks, you know, I mean, because on one level, yes, it's a song about the band and the fans standing strong together, but it's also a song that's singing about modern society stripping you of your soul. I would have to agree with you on that. That's actually a very interesting take on it. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. All right, I'll fight hell to hold you. Uh, another perfectly written song with no problems to it. Lyrically, it stands out. Um, uh, it's it stands out because it's a little bit on the on the creepy side. A lot of it is like friends disappearing because they don't understand our love, and you know I'm the only one that's really going to stand by you, not your friends. Um, you know I'm. And and I mean I'm not I'm I'm not trying to take it too far, but it sort of has that feel of like um, our friends are trying to break us up, but I'll never you know I'll do anything to hold on to you, which is you know a, a nice theme. I don't really think of like I don't think I've ever really run into this as a sort of a rocker by Kiss because I would have said it would be more of like a ballad type thing. Uh, so it's sort of a, a rocker that gives the vibe of a ballad you know what i mean i guess if that makes sense uh at least in terms of the subject matter that's a really good take yeah um but again it there's moments of where i was and i like i mean i like the i like the line i'll fight hell to hold you that's actually a pretty clever line you know and again it's lyrically pretty interesting because of the whole like your friends are going to drop away i'm you know they're going to whatever but i'm going to be the one that's always going to be by your side I'll do everything to fight for you, to stay with you, which again, could be a little creepy. 
<laughs> well, there's there's a bit of that existentialist Paul Stanley philosopher at work here, right? Where he's talking mm-hmm. about uh, when friends turn into strangers, does mm-hmm. anybody care? What is the value of that in in society? And, you know, I feel like Paul's personality is kind of split in two different directions on this album. You have sort of the romantic warrior on this song that and uh, some other songs that didn't make it onto the album. And then you have the sort of raunchy seducer who, you know, will be making an appearance shortly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Any minute now. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the marks of a great song is that it's open to different interpretations and different uh, when it's covered. And so there's a disco version of this song done by Ronald Gonzalez, which is a great song. I mean, it works as like an up-tempo disco song somehow, too. You should find it on YouTube. There's a couple different mixes floating around. All right. Yeah, I'm definitely going to do that, actually. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm surprised there are as many covers uh, of the you know, the songs from this record. I, I wasn't aware. I'll, I'll check into that. Um, but also, yeah, definitely, John, with the riff, it's, you know, it's, it's again, of the, of the period, it's a great riff. It's like, you know, A minor, F, you know, G, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, I was actually trying to figure it out the other day. It was, yeah, it's it's hard and it's complicated, but it still sounds simple. You know what I mean? It's, yeah, it's a great riff. Um, but then also too, I think you know when I think of this record, it's almost like it's one of my guilty pleasure albums. Um, when I'm feeling you know not so strong about life um, and want to you know be sort of you know want to be brought up to, to where I should be, I can put this record on and I walk away feeling better about myself. You know, so I think there's, particularly when I listen to the Paul Stanley songs, for sure. Um, and this is one of those. Um, but I want to get into something too about the, the second verse, because I, I just read a story um, that I wasn't aware of. I guess at, at the time, Gene was working with other bands doing either producing or you know doing stuff with movies and TV. And I guess Paul and Gene had a conversation where Paul basically sort of said, hey, this is what's going on. And you know, you, you got to, you got to share it in this band, but, you know, I'm not really sort of getting that, you know, from you. Um, in, in a way, when you read, you know, the, the second verse, you know, the jealous and lonely, you know, they try to keep us apart, but let them come between us. That's when the trouble starts, you know, so it's kind of like this, you know, is that like a real life in time situation where, you know, I don't think Paul would see other bands as competition, but he might see the fact that Gene's attention is being taken away by these other bands. And, you know, did that come into play when, when it came to writing these lyrics? We may never know. But at the same time, it was a conversation that did happen between, you know, basically the leaders of KISS, which were, which were Gene and, and Paul. Huh. That's interesting. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, again, this, this is one of a num- number of songs, uh, you know, from Paul that, that I, I go to when, you know, I feel like I need some motivation or just a reminder that, you know, life is good, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the river too deep, the mountain too high is a little cliche, but... I mean, there's no denying he sings the hell out of the song. You know, Dave, that's a really good segue for, for me because it, it's interesting um, because I was just speaking with my wife last night about Paul's vocals. And I said, you know, he's very deceptive in a way. Some people don't really appreciate at first glance maybe his range and his capabilities, especially then. And that's a, that song is a really good example of, 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 of just where his range is capable of going, or at least it was capable of going, because that song, um, he's no slouch in delivering that vocal, front to back. That, that's that's a fantastic performance, in, in my opinion. Yeah, that's and again, that's what I call the, that's part of the, that's the main ingredient in the Kiss Blender. You're never gonna get a bad song because Paul's gonna sing the hell out of whatever he's got. 
you know what I mean? And it's going to make it a good song, even if it's not a good song, you know, it totally is going to get you with his, the way he sings it. Not to go completely backwards, but that reminds me of something about the demo version of Crazy Nights. Um, it actually goes up even farther at the very tail end. That's a modulation, it right? Modulates up. Another, yeah. uh, and and they didn't do that on the studio version, but there's something that sounds incomplete about the studio version where it never quite resolves in the chorus that on the demo, you go, oh, that's where it was eventually getting to. That makes sense. And I wish they had done that final modulation. Okay, I've never heard the demo, so I'm curious to, to check that out. I'll send it to you. <laughs> okay. But then again, I mean, how many key changes do you have to have in a song? You know, I mean, the, the, the typical is, is one. Right. <laughs> right, you have one where you modulate in one point in the bridge, right? Yeah, and that, that's true. But Dave and I were talking the other day about the demos, you know, kind of tie this back up is, and that is one song, I have, to, I have to agree with you, Dave. That's one song where that additional modulation actually is effective in that case. Yeah. And I think when you hear it, you walk away with that feeling. And I feel the same way. It's a good reminder. I felt the same way about that too. I think the, the demo version was more realized as far as the front to back um, version that's on the narrative of that song where he was trying to go. I don't think they quite hit it on the record. No. And in fact, I think both Paul and Bruce have said they thought the demo was better. Yeah. So, um, okay. Then we come to Bang, bang, you. Uh, filler. <laughs> Not much of a song. Yeah. I mean, there's really nothing I can say about it. I mean, it's it's filler. It's uh, it's you know, it's another dick song that doesn't have anything particularly clever about it. Because I mean, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna you know, go back around the second time and make the illusion that your dick is a gun, you know, and then even reference the first time you made that illusion. It just, doesn't, you know what I mean? It just doesn't really work. I, I think, I, I agree with you. It's one of those songs I was, I was alluding to earlier about one of my, a couple of the cringeworthy songs on that record. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. And, and the fact that they chose, and I know we'll talk about it later, but the fact that they chose to, to, to feature that in that set for that tour was a head scratcher. I mean, and when you know, talking about the demos too, when Sword and Stone and Hide Your Heart um, and some other material, Nine Lies and some of the things that are on, on Gene's vault box set, the fact that they chose that song over those others is, is another perplexing riddle in the Kiss uh, history to me, history. Well, here's yes. my take. I think this potentially could have been a really great song. I think the verses and the pre-chorus are great. I think the chorus is terrible. I mean, it's witless, right? I'm going to bang you. Mm -hmm. I mean, all right, you know. Um, but I think Gene and Paul were trying to do something musically on this album where they were incorporating elements of Robert Johnson and John Lee Hooker and the Delta Blues within a rock context, okay? And I think if you listen to, especially the pre-chorus of that song, that one, two, three, four, you know, it's, it's totally, it's that Delta Blues stomp thing going on uh, between the guitar and the vocal. And, you know, even that, that opening riff, which is kind of a variation of the cold gin riff, but then it's got that great turnaround. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that instrumental turnaround is, is brilliant. Um, 
but the chorus doesn't work. And it just, you know, if the chorus isn't the best part of the song, you don't have a great song. True. Yeah, I agree. You know, the chorus just doesn't really deliver. Um, and you could compare this to any number of bands around the time. I mean, this, you know, some of these lyrics could have easily been on Invasion of Your Privacy from Rat or, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, are those really... I don't, I, Kiss, they're, they're capable of, of writing better songs sometimes than what they put out. I don't, you know, I, and at the same time too, you know, if you, if I had to go to a friend that has never heard Kiss and I gave him, I said, I'm going to play you rock and roll over and you're going to love this record. I think they would love it. You know, if I had to, to play this record to a friend that has never heard Kiss, I would have to justify certain things. And I don't want to have to do this with my favorite <laughs> band, you know? Well, here's a, right. here's a way to think of it too. You could take practically any other album title or song title on this album and substitute it for Bang Bang You and it could work, you know? Like you could yeah. say, like, Midnight Comes, I'll Be At Your Door Like a Thief in the Night, or, you know, and we'll have a crazy night. Or, you know, I mean, anything yeah. will turn on the night. I mean, anything works better than this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, then again, it was it was the time. It was this 80, 86, 87. I mean, you know, it was cool to write these kind of lyrics, I guess, you know, for for a second, you know. Uh, but also from a production standpoint, too, this is a co-write with Desmond Child. Um, around the same time, um, you know, Desmond was working with Aerosmith on the permanent vacation record. I think Do This Like a Lady has that sort of horn section, imitation horn section in the background, which is probably keyboards. Okay. No, no, no. You know, I think this is more of a technical exercise than an actual song. I think they do like a yeah. fair Van Halen imitation here. It's a barn burner. Again, I mean, I know I keep harping on this, but it's it's a good song. It's not one I'm going to pick up and listen to any other time, but I, I liked it. Here's the weirdest thing about this album that I, I wanted to mention when we started is Gene's voice doesn't sound like it's ever sounded before. There were moments where I was like, is that Eric Carr singing? Is that Bruce Kulick singing? Because that's certainly not Paul and it's certainly not Gene. You know what I mean? Like Gene's voice sounds so different on this album um, that in No, 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 I thought it was like a Bruce Kulick penned and sung song. Yeah, Nevison made him take out all the growl. So it's all full. Yeah. It all sounds like it was recorded with him not projecting that much. Right. It sounds smooth. Very smooth. Um, whereas Paul, would, when he was self-producing Animalize and Asylum, would kind of let Gene half-ass the melodies. You know, you can tell that Ron Nevison put a certain amount of pressure on him to actually work out what the notes were supposed to be. Lyrically, it's kind of grade B cliche Gene hokum for the most part. I mean, there's nothing... The only line that kind of stands out as, as sort of interesting is, you never lied, so take a bow. You know, that's kind of an interesting <laughs> bit of Gene's sarcasm there. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And also, too, from a production standpoint, I think uh, you know, this goes to John's point. There's a certain sound that Gene has on his voice on lyrics like, you know, it's a dirty job that somebody's got to do it. Uh, which to me reminds me of uh, the mountain song, Mississippi Queen, where the where Leslie West is singing, oh, but I was getting mine. There's like that low, you know, voice that, that has some sort of like chorus on, on this on this track. That it's, it, it sounds different in a way. It's a sound I've not heard Gene do before on previous records. Um, and that, you know, kind of stands out in a way to me. Yeah, I don't think the production helps this song at all. Like if this song had a lot more low end, I think it would have more energy to it. And I think it actually sounded better live on the tour than it does on the record. 
funny because I was just about to say that I thought to me this song live was just a wash. Really? Okay. Thought, well, we what am I? You know, because at the time I think they were playing through like you know they probably had Rockman gear again in in their racks and you know it, it's it's this record almost sounds like one dimensional to me. There's just no depth to it. It's very static sound there's you know there's no warmth at all no it and, washes over you it's like there's no there's yeah. no definition of the guitars and it's they're blended with the synths and the bass is barely there on some of these songs and i think that carried over into the live show too because i remember going you know i'm sure we'll get in a discussion with the live show but i just remember thinking i can't even hear what's going on because it, it's just so high end there's there's no bottom there's no bottom no mid-range to, to the mix it's just a weird it's just a weird sounding record and a weird sounding tour, in my opinion. And, you know, for me, I think I think the best way I can describe the song. This is my other cringeworthy song on the record. My 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 opinion. But I actually think if they would have given it to Billy Sheehan and Talis, it would have been a better song. Yeah. Right. Ah, great idea. You're a relative. You're a genius. The execution by the band is not there, but in the hands of somebody like Billy Sheehan, it may have been a masterpiece. I could see yeah, that. I mean, yeah, similar to yeah, similar to the stuff that he was doing when he's working with David Lee Roth too. I mean, you know, it was yeah, much good, great point. Mm -hmm. Well, there, there's also one fun, funny moment that I think of too. I think I think it's a line where Gene says, you know, don't stop me now. I got my foot in the door, and it sounds like he's sort of falling off a cliff. And he's, <laughs> you know, he's like, oh my God, I just got my foot in the door. Come on, let me in. <laughs> <laughs> I, that always cracked me up. You know, I mean, you got to have a sense of humor when you listen to music. So there you have it. Especially when you listen to Kiss. Yeah. Now, Hell or High Water. Nothing stood out to me about it. Maybe you guys liked it more than I did. It's kind of a trite song. I mean, he's complaining he hasn't seen this woman for two days, and it's like, well, that doesn't seem that bad. You know, uh, the, the, <laughs> the stakes don't seem particularly high. If anything, he seems to be having this grand epiphany that he actually misses another female human being which for him might be profound, but for the average listener it is not that exciting. And, you know, no. I mean, I think that the, the chorus has potential. I think it's the, the yin to the yang of I'll fight hell to hold you. And it, again, playing on that Delta blues stomp, they do that variation on the chorus, which is really cool. But the song on the whole is pretty forgettable. Yeah, there's nothing there, man. I, I wish I could say more. I mean, I purposely, I'll be perfectly honest, I purposely did not take notes on listening to the album for this one just to see how I would do. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Based on whether or not if I, if I listen to the album as much as I did during the week when I listened to all the other ones, you know what I mean? What would I remember uh, about the songs? And I don't remember Hell or High Water. I mean, I sort of do. I can hum the chorus right now, but that's about it. Which, that chorus is kind of... It's, it's a little annoying to me. It, just, it keeps going. It's, like, it's hell or high water, hell or high water. It's, you know, it's almost like, a, you know, there are bands, you know, not to you know, talk about other bands, but there are bands like Rat that would just have a lyric that is like, lay it down, lay it down, lay it down, lay it down. You know, this is the, the same kind of approach, you know, to the chorus, in my opinion. Um, you know, it's just, and again, it's just not that, you know, that strong of a song. And I don't, I don't really enjoy listening to the songs that Gene writes where he's, you know, talking about being lonely because... He's obviously got a lot more chances, you know, to not be lonely than, than the rest of us will ever have. So I can't really sympathize in, in this case with his play. I'm sorry, I, I just don't. 
Well, Gene never listens to this podcast because it'll probably show up and kick all of our asses. <laughs> probably, yes. <laughs> well, he lives just down the hill from or up the hill from all of us, so he can always swing by. But nonetheless, I, again, in terms of quality songwriting, I, I got my ass kicked by Gene. <laughs> he's a big guy. I wouldn't put it past him. Um, right. But in terms of songs that they played on, on the tour, which we didn't get into yet uh, either, I guess this only made it to the very first show uh, of the tour, and then that was the end of it in terms of making an appearance in the set list. Yeah, it, it, this song just doesn't do a whole lot for me. It, it's, it's you know, to use an analogy, it's got a pulse, but not a very strong one, you know? It's just barely clinging to life to me, and it's not a song I go back to listen to very often at all, <laughs> unless we're going to talk about it, but it's a forgettable song to me in, in, on that album. Moving on to My Way, not to be confused with the Frank Sinatra song, which <laughs> is probably better known for a reason. I actually, I didn't mind it. You know what I mean? Like, again, it, it was a perfectly well-written song. I, um, the lyrics were kind of, you know, talk like I talk and walk like I walk, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. I mean, that was kind of a neat. It's a nice anthem, but again, like I said, it's a it's a perfectly good song. It's just not very remember, you know, I can't remember. Again, I think straight from the, the get-go, I mean, it's, it's that ascending chord structure is dramatic in a way, and that draws you in. Um, there's a lot of minor chords in there too, so no wonder. Um, and to me, I I personally think the verses in the song are stronger than the chorus. I agree. Chorus, you know, you know, the chorus doesn't really deliver, you know. Because again, this is one of those songs where if I'm in a I'm in a bad mood, I'm thinking, you know, the world is kind of nuts, and am I the crazy one? And you know what's going on here? And I listen to this song, and I go, you know what? I'm not the crazy one. All I need to do is sort of you know, listen to Paul, <laughs> and everything will be okay, you know. But again, when you have such great verses lyrically, and then the chorus just kind of falls short, and it's interesting because you have a guy like Desmond Child who has worked with Paul and all these other bands that have written, you know, all this all these other songs with all these other artists. I mean. You know, is, you know, a chorus like in a song like Bon Jovi is living on a prayer, such a, a strong chorus, you know, debatable, I don't know, you know, but why is, why is that a bigger hit than a song, you know, on a Kiss record? You know, they, they, you have to question these things. Better story, better chorus, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, living on a prayer is, is, I mean, that's an interesting thing that you bring that up because that song is light years ahead of a lot of the stuff on here, simply because the lyrical content has a nice story. It has that weird little funky, wah, 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 you know, the talk, but is yeah. that the talk box? You know, they, they add a feature to yeah. the song. Yeah. You know, that's something that always strikes me when I'm trying to write songs is like, we need a hook, but we also need something that makes this slightly stand out from everything else. You know what I mean? There needs to be one little goofy thing in it that makes it stand out from everything else. And that could simply be a bridge or, a, you know, an intro or anything like that, but you need something and none of these songs have that you know what i mean they have catchy choruses and catchy not none of them sorry that's that's incorrect but definitely my way doesn't really have that it doesn't have something that sort of makes it stand out the other problem too is i mean this song is drowning in synthesizer and you know i think paul's doing some really cool tasty rhythm guitar playing in the verses um and it's almost completely obscured mm. um you know but yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, Mike. The chorus doesn't pay off like it should. And if you're going to do a song that has the same song title as a yeah. tremendous hit song, <laughs> you better make sure that that song is as good or better. I mean, if I'm going to write a song called Sweet Emotion, <laughs> Jesus, like, I, it better be as good or better than the Aerosmith song, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. 
my, my when I was listening to it, I was like, Sid Vicious is rolling over in his grave. You know, I mean, it's just you guys hit the nail on the head on all that. It's not a lot left to, to be labor. I, I agree. It, it, the song is way too washed out in keyboards to me. Um, and I agree. The chorus does not pay off at all. The rest of, you know, the rest of the song has got that Paul mantra that you've heard time and time again. You'd stand up, believe in yourself, believe in you. Um, and it's all there. I think he tried to capture it there, but I just think the payoff in the chorus was just kind of like he, he just walked right up the line and was like, ah, okay, fumble up the one yard line. Let's go home. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I busted yeah. my ass to get all the way down the field to get to get you here. Yeah. Ah, all right, I'm going to go home. You know, I just feel like it's unfinished. Which is actually starting to be a theme with these songs. And I would actually argue that the next song uh, suffers from the exact same problem. Can I mention, can I also make one point uh, today's point about, um, you know, the, the production with, with the keyboards? Um, the chord structure in this song reminds me of Def Leppard's um, stage fright in mm -hmm. a way, where you have like this, this really dramatic ascending chord structure, but that's mostly done on guitars, you know, with a guy just sort of hovering around a chord and then the other guy's weaving around and, and building the thing up. You know, it'd be interesting to hear this song from more of a guitar standpoint than the keyboard standpoint, because then it would probably cut through a little better, you know, but yeah. again, it was 87, they were looking for keyboards, mm -hmm. you know, sounds, and even to the point where they took a, a keyboard player on tour with them, so, you know, that was what their focus was, and, you know, it is what it is, but, you know, I mean, it, it, I'd be curious to hear this more from a, a guitar standpoint than, than a keyboard standpoint. You should listen to the demo. The demo is actually more guitar heavy than, than this. Okay. Yeah. Sure is. Okay, when your walls come down. It could have been so good. <laughs> it could have been such a great song, but it, I mean, I like the idea of it, but it just doesn't pay off in the end. I feel terrible. I feel like I, I should say more better things about a lot of this stuff. This is the one with a lot of the nursery rhyme yes. stuff going on yeah. in it. Yeah. And again, that that could have been really well done and really play, you know, played well, but it doesn't really, it, it doesn't, you know what I mean? It's not memorable to me. There wasn't a moment where I was like, oh, that's kind of a neat idea. But it, you know what I mean? It seems like he starts with a good idea going down the nursery rhyme thing, but then doesn't actually finish the thought. You know, it seems like he's just filling in the lyrics with these nursery rhymes. I actually think that the verses are relatively clever for a song in this mm -hmm. genre. I mean... You know, the kitten's got to give him the moon, you know, kind of a nice reference to, you know, whatever you want to call it, doggy style or anal sex or whatever. But, I mean... Nothing to lose. I didn't think of that at all. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead, um, You know, I think the line about you got your script from a Cosmo guide, 15 ways to find your lover, don't make me chase you because the author lied, you'll get your answers under the covers. I mean, you know... That's clever in an offhanded sort of David Lee Roth sort of way, you know. 
you know, we're, we're sort of verging into misogyny when we get into uh, you've got your pride, you've got your dignity, you'll swallow everything when you're with me. But still within the context, it works. I think the biggest problem is the chorus. Like it falls right into that 80s metal cliche of we're just going to say the words of the chorus on the quarter notes and there's no melody to it. And the, the dive bomb mm-hmm. whammy bar just sucks the energy right out of the song. Yeah. Yeah, the dive bar whammy. Yes. Yeah, much like the chorus in Partners in Crime from Kiss Killers, you know? Yeah, well, you know, Dave, I mean, and that's the thing, as you guys know, songwriters too, guitar players. Um, it's you know, a lot of times you see when people run out of ideas, they resort to whammy bars and wah-wah pedals, yeah. right? Yeah. Right? It's true. <laughs> you know, and if that way, if it, certainly that's a really good point. It is true. Uh, when you bring yeah. that whammy bar, because listening to that song, it kind of sounds like it's almost we felt we fell into a theme here. The last few songs, it seems like the center of this record, if you would, is really where it's anemic as far as feeling like there's material that's not quite finished and up to standard yet when they brought it to the table and, and the end product showed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so now we have the big power ballad of the album, Reason to Live. I liked it. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, this is, this was when it was hard to tell people that you were a Kiss fan, because this is 1987. I am now getting exposed to a lot of, uh, you know, I'm starting to listen to college radio, you know what I mean? I'm sort of going down the, the punk rock, post-punk, you know, road. I'm still a Kiss fan, um, you know, but at this, with Reason to Live, I mean, it's a great, it's a good power ballad. There's nothing wrong with it. But I remember being like, oh, come on. This is the hit? You know, this is the song that, you know, whenever I tell people I'm a Kiss fan that they're immediately going to jump to, you know what I mean? So it's sort of like, it's sort of a double-edged sword. It's a good song now that I'm, you know, now that I'm 50 years old and don't give an F what people think about my musical taste. Um, you know, I, I like it, you know, it's again, it's a perfectly by the numbers power ballad. Um, and I seem to remember cause it had a playboy playmate in it. And that was a big deal when you're like 16 or 17, but uh, I, in the video or whatever. Um, but that's it. I got, I got nothing else to add to it. I mean, is there, you know, again, it's it's a nice sort of mix between self, um, you know, sort of anthematic, but as well as being just a plain ballad, you know. I think that, that musically, even though Paul sings the hell out of it, I mean, just melodically, it's pretty standard paint-by-numbers cliche. I mean, it's really reminiscent of... I want to know what love is by Foreigner. Yes. It's really uh, reminiscent in terms of the melodic relationship between the verses and the choruses to St. Elmo's Fire, that song, the way it goes up that yep. amount. Um, I think lyrically, yeah. it is a bit elevated. It's not the standard, you know, I still love you, I won't forget you, I, you know, I still want you kind of thing. I mean, Again, Paul's getting a little bit into his existentialist philosophy mm-hmm. side when he says, I sailed into dark and endless nights and I realized, uh, you know, everybody's got a reason to live, a dream and a hunger inside, but it can't be your love. You know, even though he's experiencing the pain of a failed romantic relationship, he has this epiphany that he shares the human condition of having hopes and dreams with the rest of the human race. And so 
on some level, he can never be truly alone. And that's kind of a profound thing for a, you know, three and a half minute pop rock song. Yeah, and that's why I say it was sort of bordering on like old school kiss anthems, you know, as well as being a ballad, but yeah. Yeah, but th this is another example though, I think of them chasing trends or chasing other bands at the time. I mean, you think about some of the songs you guys already mentioned, but one song that comes to mind, and it actually came to mind then when I first heard the album and first heard the song, was uh, something like, you know, one of the Whitesnake songs. You know, Here I Go Again, Is This Love, you know, the Bon Jovi stuff. That whole thing seems to me, on this record in particular, and I think maybe it's one of the reasons they, they, they brought Nevison in, was to chase around some of those things that were tried and true on radio already and were hits. And I think they kind of fell into a, wanted to get into, I guess, a black a better way to say it, it was a formula. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, this song, I like it. You know, it's, it's a good song. It's not a song I would turn off. It's not one of my least favorite songs on the record, but it is not one of the strongest songs in their canon by any stretch, but it's not embarrassing to me. I know what they were trying to, I know what they were looking for and going after. Compare this to other ballads that came out around the time, like Whitesnake, Is This Love, or, um, you know, Foreigner, I Want to Know What Love Is. Those are sort of unresolved, you know, from a, from a songwriter standpoint. Uh, whereas Paul, I think in this case is, very definite in his point of view where the relationship has ended, but he doesn't have to feel um, you know, miserable or, or down about that. You know, it's, it's a different approach to, to writing a ballad uh, when you compare it to other bands of that era. Absolutely. All right, next song, Good Girl Gone Bad. I read something about this where apparently it's about Gene Simmons's friend losing his virginity in Gene Simmons' car or something. Is that what the case is? That's one interpretation. Yeah. Other uh, than that, I got... And then I read that he wrote it with the songwriting partner that he had never met. Yeah, so he co-wrote the song with a guy. I have to look up his name, or maybe you guys could look it up. But um, David Segerson and Peter Diggins. Yeah, one of those guys went on to become like a published novelist, oh. which I think is uh, maybe the most interesting thing about this song. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's nothing that exciting about it. It's more, the story around the song is more interesting than the song itself. Yeah, I mean, it's a song that's so boring and so bland that I feel like my my brain while I'm listening to it is almost on permanent erase. Like I, like... yeah, I could see that. I mean, that's it. Totally is. Yeah, again, the the most interesting stuff was the stuff I read about it. Oh, and also that that Bruce Kulick guitar riff thing at the beginning. Does it just me, or does that sound like the riff in? Uh... Boys of Summer by Don Henley that did, you yeah. know what I'm talking about? The yeah, the, da, 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 for sure. Yeah. You know, funny too, this also reminds me of at least the mix and, and the, the chord structure. It reminds me of, um, oh, what was the band? Oh, uh, Power Station. They did a cover of uh, uh, Bang and Gone, Get It On, the T-Rex song. Um, the production on this song sounds just like that to me in a way, which of course, you know, the Power Station album came out, you know, two years previous, but either way. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. There, there are definitely you know parts of you know both those songs. You know the song you mentioned, Dave, and, and the one I mentioned that uh, you know, come into play. It's not that interesting lyrically. I mean, there's nothing really to sink your teeth into and and, and take away from it. You know. 
Well, this, this again brings up the point. I mean, not to get like take this totally off topic, but it's like, what would have happened to Kiss if they had stayed on this path of the elder? I mean, eventually these bands stop making sense with what they're writing about because they, they it's like they're they're so set in this way that they have to be you know oh we have to write songs that are anthems and songs about our dick and songs about women that have done us wrong what you know could they have done something you know what if they had expanded their horizons but it wouldn't have worked because the old guard would have said you're nothing and I don't know. These are things that I think about while listening to this album. Like, what what could have they done to change it up? But I mean, you say like you've heard demos where it seems like there was stuff in the background that could have made this better. And but here's hmm. the interesting thing about your point about the elder is that there are two Paul Stanley mm -hmm. songs at least mm -hmm. that were they did demos of Time Traveler and Sword and Stone that are lyrically much more interesting uh, than anything on Crazy yep. Nights and kind of halfway between The Elder and Crazy Nights in terms, I mean, they, they, they're they romantic songs in a sense. So, you know, The Elder doesn't really get into that, but they're, they're, they're very interesting kind of playing upon the Arthurian legends and the sense of destiny and in both of them. Um, so again, I think that's where Nevison failed here is that, you know, he had two great, interesting Paul Stanley songs that he didn't utilize, that those, just those two songs alone, had they made it on this album, would have elevated this album. 100%, Dave, because you and I shared the other day when I first met Gene Simmons at the grand opening of his record company, uh, Simmons Records. And, and he and I spoke for quite some time. And those two songs in particular came up. And I did ask him, why weren't those songs included on, on Crazy Nights? It would have made for a much better album. And his answer to that, in short, was Ron Nevison didn't sign off on those songs. He did, for whatever reason, he did not care for that material. Hence why they're not on the record. I think it was, I think it was a giant misjudgment by Ron Nevison. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it just feels like there could have been something better than a lot of this stuff. You know what it feels like to me? It's just, it, it just kind of go back to a point you made earlier, is that the it, the Crazy Nights predecessor started to decline in sales, correct? Yes. And so I, I wonder how much, based on Kiss's history, that they had gone into kind of that territory with Dynasty Unmasked and then The Elder, where they... They were kind of riding high with their multi-platinum records and then they start a dip. I wonder if they start, they, this album was a reaction to, almost a knee-jerk reaction to, we're starting to see what we've worked for very hard start to dip a little bit with, our, with the last record. So what are we gonna do to jump in front of what we had seen happen to us in the past with a reduction in our popularity in the United States? And I think, I, I wonder too, again, with the record company politics, how much of that came from the record company saying you need X amount of ballads, you need keyboards, you need you need a producer like a Ron Nevison who's going to get your radio friendly material, so you know you can assure yourself and the label that you're not going to have a reduction in popularity and popularity in, in sales the way you did leaving the late '70s into the early '80s. I just I just I, I wonder out loud about all those things when yeah. it came to this record, including the choice of 
not having songs like Hard Your Heart and, and Sword and Stone included in a record like that. And Sword and Stone and Time Traveler, I mean, they both sound like they could be on the soundtrack with uh, the Queen songs from Highlander. You know, they have that heroic anthemic thing going, but it's also romantic. But it's it, it it's it's like they took the most boring, bland songs they could find to put on this album and tried to make them work as well as they possibly could. You know, also today's point about um, you know if they were going to have you know a direction in terms of you know, wanting to have commercial success. I think I read around this time that they were having a lot of meetings with uh, their business managers and they were basically being told like, this is where you guys are. And it, it wasn't good. It wasn't looking good. They needed to you know, up their game and that might've been a driving force behind you know, the type of album that they, they approached. Yeah, I think it, it, you're right. It, it, both of you are right. It's an album made out of fear. Um, it's interesting. The Asylum tour um, like started off like this, right? Like attendance was low and they had a lot of trucks and they were losing money. As the tour yeah. went on, attendance actually rose because they had, you know, those uh, Tears Are Falling was a hit single and they were getting significant airplay and they kept downsizing the show to the point where by the end of the tour, they were playing to packed arenas again and they were making money. Um, but it, it took them downsizing the show a couple of times to make the tour profitable. So, turn on the night. Uh, I got nothing. I, I liked it. I mean, it, you know, but again, it's written with Diane Warren, I guess, who is another um, co-writer. I don't know much about her. There's nothing. I mean, again, it's a perfectly serviceable song. It's one of the better ones out of a lot of the bad ones that are not on here. Um, but I'm interested in actually your other, your your opinions on it, everybody else, because it didn't really, again, it doesn't really stand out to me. I don't really remember it that well. Yeah, Diane Warren was one of those writers back then that was certainly um, hitting her stride. You know, she was uh, one of those writers that wrote with Aerosmith and some others. I think even maybe Michael Bolton. Um, but I know she did like, I don't want to miss a thing. No, not kidding. It was, right? So I think, you know, and, and you see she wrote with Aerosmith, you know, obviously Aerosmith and, and others. I, I wonder, bringing her into the fold like Desmond Child. Desmond Child obviously had a history with Kiss previously, but look at the success Desmond had with uh, Bon Jovi too. Mm -hmm. So I think again, going back to the formula that maybe they were looking for for that radio success was bringing in people outside writers like Diane Warren, Desmond Child, as as part of their thinking and trying to put this this thing together that became this album. Right. I'm going to say this is probably my least favorite Kiss song ever. Wow. <laughs> really? Yeah, because it's so completely mm. generic and toothless. Like, it could have been done by anybody. It could have been done by Winger, Warrant, Slaughter. Poison. Poison, you know. And, it, I mean, just the title alone, Paul stole from the Motley Crue song, uh, too fast for love, right? So damn cool, she can turn on the night. Although Nikki Six was using it in a context, it was like she's so sexually attractive that she can turn on, you know, an inanimate object or a thing, right? Whereas he's using it as which more is like clever. <laughs> which is clever. He's using it in the context of like flip on the night, like a light switch kind of thing or whatever. Right, yeah, not quite as as clever, but it's just. Uh, you know, even to the point when they use lyrics like fire below, I mean, it's almost a non sequitur. I mean, it's it's there to fill space. 
and to continue the melody, but it doesn't really connect with the rest of the lyrics and what he's trying to say. It's just, it's so generic and it's so trite. I just, I mean, I, 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 you know, whenever I listen to Three Sides and they go on about how bad Read My Body is, I think like, <laughs> I think about this song and I go, you know, at least Read My Body has some personality to it. But the problem with We My Body, though, is this whole the discussion is you know, that's to me is you know a copy of Def Leppard's uh, Pour Some Sugar on Me. Oh yeah, it's a total ripoff of Def Leppard. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, but for me, the saving grace in this song, um, you know, of course, you know, lyrics noted, but the chord changes in the uh, the pre-chorus. You know, where he's saying, "You you got what I want, I got what you need." Fire below. Those chord changes are great. They, there's a, a certain dra drama to that that, that keeps me interested in the song. You know, so maybe the, the most interesting thing about you know the song might be, you know, the music in a way, and, and the chord changes more so than the lyrics. Which, you know, for me sometimes I, I question you know, how important lyrics are. But yes, they're very important, but at the same time too, if you don't have a good riff or something that's taking you somewhere and climbing, then then you've got no song to begin with. You know, and no, no amount of good lyrics are going to make you know, you know, a good riff. You know a better song sometimes you know right well it's like that debate what's more important a comic book the writing or the art you need good art and you need good writing or it doesn't work mm -hmm. yeah 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 I, I don't know for me this maybe call it a guilty pleasure but i like this song a lot you know it is a happy song is it up it's an up song it isn't is it one from you know the formula of shout out loud and all those other feel-good songs Absolutely, but there's something about it that I find very charming, in spite of how simple it may be and how generic it may be uh, and contrived and maybe any of those other artists could have done it. But there, there's something about the song that I find um, as maybe it's a guilty pleasure. Um, you know, like an old Archie's record that you cut off the back of when you guys are too young, but cut off the back of the cereal box and you put on, I put on when I was a kid. Yeah, there's an innocence about it that I, I just find charming, I find fun. And, uh, but I, I do get your points, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I hate it as much as you, Dave, but I definitely, it, it feels like kind of filler. I just feel like the, the way, turn on the night, it's like, it's like poison, ride the wind, meaningless. I mean, it's just. <laughs> yeah. I, again, yeah, I think one of the themes too with this record is, you know, sometimes the verses are strong and the courses just don't pay off. They don't, they don't give you what you. Mm -hmm. you know what you're hoping to, to to hear in terms of you know great is it a great melody sure it works but you know lyrically how's it you know how strong is it right the melody is way stronger than the lyrics let's say yeah. that um okay but you know let's let's also say this is this is something we didn't mention before there's a lot of great guitar playing from bruce on this record um absolutely you know great yeah i mean it, he you know when you compare to like a guitar player like vinnie vincent um you know, I wouldn't say that Vinny was, you know, blues influenced in any way. And, and granted, Bruce is also doing a lot of finger tapping, which was, you know, popular at the time as well. But, you know, Bruce, his solos are, are memorable. And sometimes as fast as they were, you know, in terms of tempo, um, you know, that, that being what it is. But I think, you know, he's, he definitely has a style that, you know, that he, he's always had. And that shines through in this record. And I, that's definitely, you know, admirable in, in my opinion. I agree. Mm -hmm. Okay, final final song on the album. Um, a song that we've heard before on the Wendy O. Williams <laughs> record uh, with some slight variations, Thief in the Night. I, 
it's a killer riff. Love the riff. I mean, you know what I mean? Like it was, and it's a breath of fresh air at the end of the album. You know what I mean? It's a good finisher to it. Um, lyrically, I, I didn't pay any real attention to it. I couldn't, you know what I mean? But the, it definitely rocks. Like I love the, I love the riff that's there. Um, you know, it's got a big chorus to it. You know what I mean? Which again, always works for Kiss, that kind of thing. So I liked it, got no issue with it. It's probably one of the better songs on the album. Definitely Gene's best song by far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it, why does it remind me of, um, you know, like songs from Creatures, uh, you know, like Killer and Rock and Roll Hell in a way. Yeah. There's, there's something yeah. interesting about it lyrically, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's the only song on the album that, you know, you could actually say has kind of a dark edge to it. Um, yeah. It's interesting if you compare the version on this album to the version on the Wendy o. Williams solo album that Gene produced, they actually play mm -hmm. the main riff slightly differently um they like they play it on the upbeat i think or there's something there's like weird syncopation going on to the way they play it on this record to how they play it on that record and to me it sounded more natural on the wendy o. williams record it sounds like the way they're playing it sounds slightly out of time with the chorus um I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm used to hearing it that way that I feel like that's, you know, a better way to do it. But, um, you know, aside from the fact that it's recycled, um, I think it's got like a cool, dark, mysterious, almost like spy thriller vibe. Yeah. Like, the, I mean, the lyrics are a little vague, but, um, you know, it's obviously it's talking about the sexual power dynamics between a man and a woman, I, I sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Before I forget, I like the fact that it's she doing the breaking in. You know what I mean, rather than he, uh, which is kind of it. Yeah, yeah. He thinks he's going to dominate her, and the right. reverse She's ends the up one happening. Doing the breaking in, yeah. You know, I, I love the line in a hotel chamber on a cryptic note. Yeah, because where there's fire, there's got to be smoke. Yeah, that's a pretty clever line. You know, the the line about red nails round his throat, you know, again, this whole Gene Simmons film noir sex equals murder kind of thing. Are we talking about a quote-unquote ritual killing that's as referenced earlier in the song? Or are we talking about autoerotic asphyxiation or something halfway in between? Who knows? May we never know. <laughs> no, I, I agree with all your comments on this song. I, I think... If Anything about this song is lacking to me at all um, is the overall production. Because you know, there's a rawness that's underlying in that song. And I think somebody said it before. This song that would have fit really well on Creatures of the Night. Uh -huh. um, it's just kind of got that edginess to it. I just think, you know, and I, you know, the production doesn't take away from me uh, from the fact that I like the song. It is one of my favorite songs on the record for sure. But I hear that other thing, knowing the Wendy o. Williams production, because uh, I was familiar with that version first. Maybe that taints my opinion of the production of this particular version of it. Um, but I would have liked to have heard it in a little a little rawer um, than this ultimately turned out with most of the material on Crazy Nights anyway. But it it's a great it's a great closer. It it brings it, it brings some sunshine back to that record and and to my taste, uh, it's a good way to close it out. Yeah. Or a little darkness, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, that too, yeah. <laughs> so, so they put this record out, and they go on tour. Um, you know, I was thinking about this tour. Um, 
I don't know how well attended it was when you saw it, Dave. When they came to the Civic Arena, they played a half-house crowd, maybe 6,000 people at best. Um, really not a well-attended show. Um, a strange show because they only played 14, 14 songs, right? They didn't even play Detroit Rock City on this tour. Um, they played... They did solos for Paul, Bruce, and Eric, um, and yet the, the entirety of the show was like 88 minutes. They usually right. were playing for like, two, you know, close to two hours or more, and this is the shortest set they've ever done, um, the least songs they've ever played on a tour, and maybe the least memorable tour they've ever done. I mean, I can't think of one thing especially memorable about this tour aside from the fact that they brought back the ramp that went behind the drums that they had on dynasty it, it, dave yeah you're, mm. i agree it was my experience i saw them at the thomas and mac center and paul had and it was empty they had mm. moved thomas and mac center is not a big arena to begin with um and so they had moved it to about 50 percent capacity the stage is about the middle of of the thomas and mac center but I got to tell you, it, it was even up to showtime, I was looking around because there was a lot of room and I was on the floor. There was a lot of room between me and the person standing next to me. And I was waiting for almost like that surge that maybe people were out in the concession area waiting for the band to come on for mm -hmm. you know, the rest of the place to fill up. And it didn't happen. In fact, at one point, Paul said, and he probably said this a number of times on the tour, but he's, I definitely remember him saying it, it in Las Vegas was, um, there were so few people there. He wanted to order pizza for everybody. And, um, and at one point during, and it, this is the weird part that just sticks in my mind to this day. Um, in, in a rare moment, I actually had to go to the bathroom during the show. So I waited for one of the solos and I went up to use the bathroom and I swear to you, this is not an over exaggeration, overstatement. They were already cleaning the floors. Wow. It was the weirdest, most, it almost it was surrealistic, like I was in a dream. This is an alternate reality, because just a year before and a year before and a year before, I'd seen them consistently from the 70s. Um, even at those times that they weren't peaking in, in their popularity, this wasn't something entirely different. Now, later, in their defense, I saw in the paper the next day that Sting was in town. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I don't know how much weight I would give the fact that Sting was performing the same day as 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 the reason that that Kiss was was under uh, performing you know expectation so to speak for their crowd at, at, at Thomas and Mac. In fact, when I left, I actually had a sinking feeling walking out to my car. I thought, is this the last time I'm going to see this band? Because mm. I can't see them continuing in this manner. Because it, it was almost I, I would dare I say almost club like capacity. Yeah. Yeah, and Ted Nugent opened for him when we saw him. Was he the opener for you? I know, I know. I, I want to say it was Wasp. Okay. We saw, yeah, it was Ted Nugent, and we had fairly good seats, right, Dave? I'm trying to think. Were we on the floor for that one? I almost want to say yeah, but I know that Ted Nugent toured with them a lot. I know that I saw a lot of Ted Nugent, and I know that there was a lot of times that I was like, man, I don't want to see Ted Nugent anymore. I have an ad from the, uh, the newspaper about the show, you know, advertising the show. And this is one of the rare times where they advertised the show as theater-style seating, which would have been half-house seating. But when you get to the show, if you've been to you know, 
the Civic Arena at the time was your, your typical you know, arena that was you know, sort of the, the, the oval shape uh, area where the bands would play. Theater style would have put the, the stage midway back. However, they had the stage at the, at the normal you know, north end of the arena, but when they'd set it up that way, it definitely made it seem like there were you know, a lot less people there. Yeah. Attendance was low. I, you know, I, I could never figure out why. Even to, uh, the night um, after I attended a, a Def Leppard show uh, where Tesla was the opening act in the same venue, and that place was packed. You couldn't have, you know, there were a ton of people at that show. So, well, maybe that had something to do with it, though. Mm-hmm. Could be, right? Yeah. I remember it not being particularly well attended. I remember us being on the floor. I remember Ted Nugent being the one that gave the interview on DVE for the show rather than any member of the band. Um, And he kept referring to them as the Kissy Boys. And I remember like hating Ted Nugent at that point. If your competition at this time is Def Leppard and they're promoting a Hysteria record, that that record is blowing up. And they're selling out multiple nights in different areas. You know, here comes Kiss. They want you know want to do their thing, and they're gonna you know I don't want to say phone it in, but you know they're giving us you know oh almost a little over an hour of, of a set time. You know when they could easily fill that you know two hours of set time and and make people happy with it. But the interesting thing was when they went to Japan and toured for this record, they added songs like you know I was made for loving you and Doctor Love and Strutter and Black Diamond, all these things that you know maybe we should have been singing on the American tour. You know so. You know, why is it that you know when they go to another market, then all of a sudden you know they 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 make the set longer and add more songs, whereas we kind of got the short end of the stick on this tour. And this this show, I, I remember I remember going home from the show thinking that was the fastest kiss show I've ever seen. Like I I probably spent more time just getting to the venue and and getting inside, and, and then boom, they play and they're gone. You know. Yeah, and it felt especially like paltry because you know the the extended solos took up so much of the time. And, you know, when has there ever been a KISS show where they didn't play Detroit Rock City? Yeah, I mean, there's really nothing memorable. I mean, any other KISS tour, I can say, you know, there was something theatrically special or memorable about it. But this one, what was there? Yeah, I I remember going to the show, but I don't know. Uh, This is terrible. We sound like a bunch of sad old men. Like, no, you know, the thing is, you know, think about this, though, in, in the context of the world we live in today with information being what it is on the Internet. This was before, obviously, the Internet, right? Can you imagine, even though the, the, the turnout was, for all of us, you know, by eyewitness accounts, the turnout was very anemic mm-hmm. because the set list was short. The, the solos were extended. Can, can you imagine word of mouth then, or not even word of mouth, but on the Internet saying, hey, this is what you're getting when you go see Kiss. You're getting a short set, a short instead. You're getting extended solos. Hell, it was bad in 1988. Can you imagine if it would have been today? They, they, I have no idea. They would have, They probably would have had to cancel the tour because I think I didn't know. I'll just say this. I didn't know walking into the Thomas DeMac Center that, that the set was going to be that short and I was going to see and, and experience probably the shortest uh, kiss set I'd ever witnessed since 1976. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as I'm trying to remember what they said about this tour, I think they used this line about, oh, it's going to be the biggest stage we've ever had. And there's going to be, you know, but I mean, they would routinely say that about every tour and the stage was never significantly any bigger. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, but, but to, to, to put a positive spin on it, I, I think what you said too about or what we said about what happened with the Japanese tour. 
And I think, didn't they do the Ritz on this tour in 1988? They actually did pull out, and that was broadcast, and they did pull out stuff like calling Dr. Love and, and, and some, Deuce and some of the older standards. Yes, live at the Ritz. And I think that it was that club show and them adding those old songs in the set that kind of gave them the spark to uh, play on Hot in the Shade, where they played the most songs they've ever played on in a show. And they essentially cut the solos down, if not completely out. And, you know, they pulled out all kinds of old songs from, you know, back in their history. See, and that's exactly where I was going, David. It was, it was, if there was a positive to this, maybe that is exactly what planted the seed for moving forward with what happened on mm. Hot in the Shade is, you know, we saw the set list finally get shaken up and, and some appreciation given to some of the older classics that were, by and large, throughout the 80s were forgotten. And they were well, to me, they were, they were songs were welcome back. And it was, a, it was a good shot in the arm for me as a fan to go back and see him again. So maybe something did come out of this tour that was, you know, it was uh, worth, you know, worth noting. It was, it, was a good, it was a good thing. Well, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And it was a much more successful tour as well. I mean, you know, granted, the bands that opened for them on that tour were probably helping their draw a lot more than Ted Nugent was at that point. But, Butter. you know. Um, all right. Any final thoughts about Crazy Nights, the album, and the tour? If you have access to the demos, even just if you go to YouTube, um, that's a revelation. I think anybody who likes or maybe on the fence about that record, go back and see what you can find on some of those demos, and uh, you may actually walk away with a different appreciation for where they started. Okay, definitely we'll check that out. Thank you. I agree. All right. Well, great to see you guys. Um, before I let you go, um, I usually I do this at the beginning of the, the show, but uh, John, congratulations. Your song is uh, doing really well in South Africa, right? Yeah, South Africa. We're number one on the folk rock charts. And apparently if you take out all pop music and do it only by genre, we're number 20. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. And I mean, we, I mean, I finally have actual proof of it because apparently some uh, internet site down in, in South Africa did actually call Rob, called the manager to call Robert for an interview. So I guess it's real. You know what I mean? Like, I just don't believe it. I mean, we're not suddenly like seeing all this money or anything, but um, yeah, it's, it's freaking amazing. It's really, really amazing. I love it.
And then what uh, song do you want to play, Mike? Um, I just did a session with uh, a band I'm playing with uh, now. I'd like to, to play uh, the song by The Claws. It's called Just For A Moment.
play once again up up and away with 4EJ because I just finished cutting that video together and uh, want to spread the word about that. Oh, man. 
All right, we will be back next week. Um, I don't think we need a whole show to cover the songs on smashes, thrashes, and hits, but we'll take a quick look at that, and then we will talk hot in the shade. (laughs) 